0: Hello, everybody. How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, I have uh, double duty tonight, so I have your announcements. Yes, yes, yes. Hey, number one, um, uh, probably a lot of you were there earlier today, but this, uh, this morning, about 11 o'clock, we had John Bro's memorial service in here. And uh, a friend of mine said it really well. He, he said, I've lived in the Boulder area for about 23 years, and I've never experienced anything like that. And I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe it. Um, If you weren't able to come and you wanted to come or you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, John's uh, memorial service will be online probably tonight, if not tonight, uh, by tomorrow. So you can check that out online on our website. All right. So just go to the front page for that. Um, The other thing is this. A lot of you have uh, inquired as to why you didn't receive um, end of year giving notices and things like that. And that's probably because we didn't have your information correct. So if you would, again, go to the website. On the very front, you'll see a button that says something about interviewer giving, notice info, something like that. Click on that, and uh, you can send us your your contact info, and that'll help us out. Um, Another uh, announcement I have is that I've uh, actually prepared a statement uh, tonight, um, an official response to Jim's decision a couple weeks ago um, to read my third-grade essay (laughs) on horses. I would like to read it to you now, if that's okay. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you were forced against your will to listen to Jim read what he said was an essay I wrote while in grade school. A simple misspelling made this essay humorous to many at my expense. I've been asked by many if I would respond, and I've been told by elders even within this church that I should respond. It seems that many have been waiting in eager anticipation of such a response. Well, I've decided to take the high road in efforts to glorify Jesus... Which is what I thought we were all about around here. So my hope is to call it a truce and move on with our lives and simply put this ugly event behind us. So I stand here today with my cheek turned, promising that I will not be the one to break this truce. If by some unfortunate sequence of events you are to see an old yearbook picture of Jim, I will not be the one responsible. (laughs) Let us pray. No, I'm just joking. There's there's no way. All right. That picture is as every bit as real as my essay was, and I'll leave it at that. All right? Hey, uh, we've been in this series called Hide and Seek, and we've looked at different people in the Bible who decided to hide from God, and we looked a couple weeks ago at some pretty well-known people, known as Adam and Eve, who decided to hide from God specifically because of their shame. And then last week we looked at this pretty well-known guy from the Bible named Peter who decided to hide from Jesus specifically because of his failure. He went back to his old way of life. And we've been asking some questions around here because things like shame and failure are pretty strong motivating factors in our life. And so we understand why people like Adam and even Peter would run and hide. But we've been asking questions like, well, if there is a God and he's good and he came seeking us, why would we hide from him? because it doesn't make much sense to hide from God if he exists. And number two, if he wants what's best for us, why would we bother to hide from him? And so what we've been learning is kind of similar to hide and seek, where you actually want to be found sometimes. Being found is a good thing. I discovered this the other day. I've taken up mountain biking, all right? And um, I haven't actually taken my bike on a mountain, which turns out to be kind of how you put the whole thing together, but I've been kind of riding around on trails around my house and around Lafayette and Erie and all over the place, and um, I'm learning that it's very important to have a few things with you when you go out on a bike, namely a cell phone. Um, Secondly, uh, a, an inner tube, if you get a flat tire, which turns out there's lots of those little goat head things around here that flatten your tires really fast, and then the ability to actually change said tire if you had tube would be helpful as well. None of which I had the other day when I found myself out on a very um, old dirt road where no traffic had been, and I got a flat tire, and the sun was going down, so no cell phone, nothing like that, and so I'm actually I've decided okay I'm going to have to run home, and I'm obviously at like the first this point away from my house so i'm running beside my bike down this old dirt road and then this car comes whizzing past me and i'm going oh darn it that was my chance and then this car comes back but they pass me again i'm like well that's just mean and so um i keep i keep going but then i hear a voice that says pastor scott um which you can just call me scott for crying out loud all right um and he goes, and I've got my helmet, my my, my uh, sunglasses, and a jacket on. I don't know how they recognize me. But anyway, they're like, do you need a ride home? And I'm like, there is a God. Yes, I need a ride home. And so I was found, and I've discovered found is good. Now, I could have doubted my rescuer's intentions, right? I mean, I, I could have said, you know what? No, thank you. I don't really know for a fact that you actually want to help me. You probably just want to steal my bike and leave me for dead. I mean... You go to Flatirons after all, you know? Um, Or how do I know that you'll really take me to my house? How do I know you won't take me further away from my house and leave me more lost than what I already am? Or how do I know that you actually even go to Flatirons? This could be some kind of weird conspiracy. I, I could have doubted the whole thing, but you would probably call me words like paranoid or foolish if I did that. Now, the truth is, doubt is a huge motivating factor in a lot of our lives that causes us to run and hide from God. And doubt is one of those things that sometimes is very justified and other times is a little less credible. But the truth is, every one of us in here wrestles with doubt, especially when it comes to this God stuff, this church stuff, this supernatural stuff, this prayer stuff, and the list goes on and on and on. I looked up the, the word doubt in the dictionary, and it's defined like this, to hesitate to believe or to question. And can I just say this right up front before we dive in tonight? I'm a pastor. All right, I went to Bible college. I read the Bible a lot. I, I read books by really smart people about the Bible, about God, about prayer, about the church, all kinds of stuff. And guess what? I doubt. I doubt. I, I sometimes hesitate to believe. I have lots of questions, and I hope that's okay with you. I mean, if I need to tender my resignation because I have doubt today, I'll gladly do it because it's just the flat-out truth. Well, let me press a little further, okay? If you're ever in a place where you hear a Christian leader say, he or she doesn't struggle with doubt, whether it's at a church, a conference, on a radio television, a a radio show or a television show, a book or a Bible study, whatever the context, whatever it is, if they tell you that they honestly never hesitate to believe or they never ask questions, gather your things, And walk out the door, switch the channel, put the book on the shelf, or throw it across the room because that's a lie. It just is. As we saw last week, Jesus' closest companions, his closest friends, the ones who walked with him, got to know him, hung out with him, and saw him do incredible things, all wrestled with doubt. So for anyone on this side of Jesus to say that they don't struggle with doubt, that's just disingenuous and probably not true. See, the truth is, doubt doesn't have to be the enemy of faith, but we often allow it to be. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at a guy who's actually been made famous because of his doubt. In fact, his name is almost always attached to a word similar to doubt. He's been called Doubting Thomas. And in the same way, you know what, it's not really a fair label, to be honest with you. One of the, the earlier moments, one of the only other earlier moments we have recorded of Thomas interacting with Jesus is when Jesus, late in his, his ministry, three and a half years have gone by, Jesus decides to go to this town called Bethany. Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem, and towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jerusalem is the hotbed of controversy. It's where all the people who want to kill him are. Are. and jesus has now decided to go right outside its door and all the disciples are going this is an ill-advised decision and it's thomas who speaks up look at this it'll be on the screen john eleven sixteen. then thomas called didymus which means twin and a lot of people think this is for one of two reasons either he was nicknamed twin because he looked a lot like jesus or he had a twin we don't know which but then thomas called didymus said to the rest of the disciples let us go also that we may die with him I think this reveals a couple things about Thomas. The first is this he did not lack courage. The second is this he was a pessimist at heart, which is why all of a sudden I can resonate with Thomas, right? See, I don't know how you're wired. We're all wired differently. Um, Some of you in here, you're just more apt to trust people. You, You think the best of people. You more readily believe what someone is saying to you. You assume good intentions. You expect the best, And that can be a really, really good attribute. At its worst, it can lead to harmful gullibility. I'm not wired that way at all. That's just, that's just not me. I'm wired. It's really a pain. I'm wired to see what's wrong with things. That's, that's how I walk around. Everywhere I go, I see problems. Problems with systems. Like at the grocery store, for example. Walmart, specifically. The doctor's office. Um, I see mistakes. I have questions. I don't take things at face value. I don't readily trust I don't take someone at their word right off the bat. So that's the way I approach the Bible, just so you know. That's the way I'm bent. So when I read the Bible, I tend to come away with a lot more questions than I have answers. That's why most of my sermons around here are only just me kind of showing you how I wrestle with the questions I have when I read the Bible. And so fast forward. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Let me set this up for you as you're getting there. Jesus has died, which means the worst fears of His followers have been confirmed. They've come true. And Jesus' followers do not have a category for this other than extreme disappointment. See, Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, and in their paradigm, Messiahs, by definition, don't die if you're a real Messiah. And so they are lost. I mean, they have no idea what to do, even though the scripture, the Bible, predicted this is exactly what would happen to the Messiah. And Jesus said specifically to them on many occasions, I'm going to die. They just couldn't wrap their minds, their hearts around this truth. So then Jesus rises from the dead, and he appears first to a few of his female followers, then to some more disciples that night. But Thomas was conspicuously absent. So we pick up the story in John 20, beginning in verse 24. Here we go. Now Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is why he's called Doubting Thomas. Now, can I just say right off the top, I'm with Thomas. All right, I don't know about you. I'm with Thomas. If I'm Thomas and a handful of my buddies who I know really well who've been close friends and we've all gone through a deep tragedy of horrible loss when we lose a close friend and they come to me and tell me, hey, listen, while you were gone the other night, we were up in that room and he walked in and we hung out with him and we talked with him and he's alive and it was great and it was awesome. If I'm Thomas, I got some questions. First question, guys, what you been smoking in that upper room the past few days, right? (laughs) Second question, um, guys, seriously, In my experience with dead people, they have this strange tendency to stay dead. Now, yes, Jesus rose a few people from dead back to life, and we saw it happen, but now the razor of the dead is dead. So where does that leave us, guys? Guys, come to your senses. If I'm Thomas, I probably react the same way that he did. Now, pick it up in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. That's quite a moment, right? I mean, just like we talked about last week, where Peter had his awkward moment with Jesus on the seashore, where Jesus addressed his failure, this is Thomas's awkward moment with Jesus, where Jesus addresses his doubt. And I find it really interesting that Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had demanded as proof of his resurrection. You needed to touch this, go ahead. You need to put your hand on my side, go ahead. I've heard what's in the way. I've heard the roadblock, the obstacle to you believing in me is this. So let me take that off the table for you. Stop doubting and believe. See, the original word here for believe is the same word that's translated faith. And the word for doubt is simply the opposite of faith. So the best way to translate what Jesus said to Thomas on this day is simply this. Stop becoming an unbeliever and become a believer. In other words, he's saying, Thomas, you're actively running away from me. You're actively hiding. You're you're running away from belief in me. Start actively running towards me and seek. Hide and seek. Another way we say it around here is simply this. You can lean on this. You can trust this. You can build your life on this. You can invest in this. Jesus is saying, stop leaning away from me and start leaning towards me. Have faith, believe, stop doubting. And I love the way Thomas responds. Look, Look at this, verse 28 Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Translation, uh, you are Jehovah, the one true God, which was a capital offense in Thomas's culture to even say that to a human being. You don't call a human being God. It's called, in biblical terms, blasphemy. Did you notice, uh, it's kind of obvious what's missing here. It doesn't say anything about Thomas touching Jesus. See, apparently, Thomas, his demand to touch the wounds, to make sure that he wasn't hallucinating or seeing some sort of ghost, apparently that all faded away when he was confronted face-to-face with the living God, Jesus. And Thomas had the only right response to coming face-to-face with the living God. It's called worship. But Jesus wasn't done yet. He has something else to say. Look at this, verse 29. "'Because you've seen me, you've believed, Thomas.'" But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, you've believed, Thomas, because you've had extraordinary proof to convince you to believe. And not many people in history will receive the same privilege as you just got. Not many people are going to get the same opportunity as you just had. So blessed, fortunate are people who believe in me without actually seeing. See, he's talking about you. And he's talking about me. And then the author, John, he interjects here and he kind of sums things up this way. He gives us the aim, the thrust of the whole reason that he's been writing down these stories about Jesus. He says this in verse 30, Jesus, he did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All this was written down with your faith in mind. My faith in mind, our belief in mind, and our life in mind. That's what the writer of John is after in our hearts. He, he's offering proofs that will help move us towards belief and faith. But I got a few questions. Questions I've been wrestling with, questions I got to ask you today. It's simply, here's the first one Is it possible that for some of us, the God you're seeking is not the God you're finding, and that's leading you to doubt? Here's what I mean by that. I talk about this all the time around here, but you and I, we have this strong tendency to want a certain type of God. And actually, there's TV shows that tell us this is the God that we should seek because this is the God that exists. He's kind of a cosmic genie, right? He's around just to grant you and me wishes He's around just to do whatever we need to be at our beck and call. He's a, he's a God who has our health, wealth, and prosperity and nothing else in mind. And could it be that since a lot of us have found that there is no such God, that we've started to think maybe there is no God? Just a question. The second question we'll spend a little longer on is this. What, what has a tendency to put us on the path to unbelief that Thomas was on? In other words, what are the obstacles to faith for you and me? What causes doubt or a hesitancy to believe for you and me? See, I think there's all kinds of major roadblocks that we find, but I'm going to talk about a few of them. The the first roadblock I think we find is experiential. What I mean by that is that any one of us could probably say, you know what, I've never touched God, I've never seen God, I've never felt God, I've never tasted God, I've never smelled God. I have no experience of God through my five senses. So there is no God. When popular atheist Carl Sagan says it this way, God could have engraved the Ten Commandments on the moon. You see what he's getting at? Meaning, if God really wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he just show up in an undeniable way so we can quit arguing about it? I mean, kind of like he did with Thomas. It's a good question. There's been a lot of people, really smart people, answer that question. And here's my kind of go at it, all right? I think it comes down to what type of faith what type of belief Jesus is actually after. You see, he revealed what he's looking for when he interacted with Thomas. Remember what he said? He said, because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It seems that that type of faith is what Jesus is ultimately after. See, it seems that God is interested in playing hide and seek with us. He wants us to seek. Not to mention... There are cases all throughout history, all throughout the Bible, where people have seen God move in amazing, undeniable, you would think, miraculous ways and still been right in the middle of the path of unbelief. One small example, the nation of Israel... They were, you saw the movie maybe, they were let out of slavery of Egypt and then they go through the Red Sea because God parts it miraculously in front of them. He leads them by cloud by day, fire by night, rains down food from heaven, takes care of them every step of the way. And the first moment they have of being alone without their leader Moses, what do they do? They get all their gold jewelry off, they throw it in a fire, they melt it down, they make the form of a cow and they bow down and they worship it and they give credit to this, wor- this cow that was due to the one true God that had just walked them through the wilderness. Here's what I mean. Objective proof doesn't always lead to genuine faith. It doesn't. Another obstacle a lot of us have is this one. It's deeply personal. It's called loss or crisis or pain. Meaning you went through something horrible and God, as far as you could tell, didn't show up. One of my favorite stories is a book uh, maybe you had to read in high school. I had to read. It's called The Count of Monte Cristo. Maybe you saw, saw the movie. But in it, there's this man, main character, Edmund Dantes. He's a man of real extreme childlike faith. And he's set up and he's betrayed by a friend. He's wrongfully accused and he's sent to prison for treason. And on his first day there... This is what the warden has to say to him about faith. Check it out. See, I think a lot of us feel like we're hanging there and life is kicking the crap out of us and God is nowhere to be found. He's eerily silent and absent, right? See, I I did a talk on that very question just a couple months ago in our 3G series. It's called Gifts. If you want to get a lengthier, much lengthier explanation about this question, go online, listen, and watch. But in short, here's the truth, all right? God makes absolutely no promise that you and I will not go through horrible, terrible things in this life. He allowed Jesus, his own son, to go through extreme poverty, abuse, torture, unlawful trial, suffering, extreme sadness, betrayal, brutal death, just to name a few. But the question is why? The answer is for good. For good. See, God never says that all things that happen to us are good. In fact, many things that happen to you and happen to me are extremely evil and things that God Himself hates. But what He does promise is that not a moment of your life or mine is wasted. It says this in Romans eight twenty eight: "In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him." All things aren't good; God works for the good. Like the death of our friend John Bro on two eighty seven just the other day. Was that good? Absolutely not. It's horrible. Will good come from it? We're barely scratching the surface so far. It's going to be more than you and I could ever imagine. There's another obstacle, though, to our faith and our belief. It's For some of us more than others, this one is intellectual problems. This ranges all far and wide from silly riddles like, can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, to debates between creation and evolution and stuff like that, Here's the fundamental problem with this roadblock. Far too often we allow intellectual questions, doubts, or other people's arguments that they raise cause us to to hide instead of seek. See, questions are good. But far too many people allow questions to cause unbelief when questions should put us on the path to seek answers. See, in my experience, very few people have the courage to doubt their doubts Meaning to apply the same level of skepticism to their own beliefs as they do to that of others. Recently, um, I went to this debate down on CU's campus with thousands of other people and many people from this church. And the debate was between this renowned atheist named Christopher Hitchens. You may have seen him all over the news in the past couple of years. He wrote a book a while back called um, God is Not Great and How Religion Poisons everything. And I read his book and then he was debating a a Christian thinker named Dinesh D'Souza who's a really brilliant guy. And I read his book and I thought I'd like to see him argue. So that'd be cool. So we went down there on a freezing night to Mackey Auditorium. It was packed out. And at the beginning of the night, they passed out these cards. And on the card, you were supposed to indicate at the beginning of the night who you had a tendency to be more on board with. The atheist or the person who believes in God, Sousa or Hitchens, who, who you on board with at the beginning of the night. And then at the end of the night, you were supposed to indicate whether you had been swayed. In other words, did you switch teams, so to speak, at the end of the night? And I didn't have to see the survey results to know exactly what happened at the end of the evening. See, at the beginning of the night, it seemed that about two-thirds of the people in the room were on board with at least the idea that there is a God out there, meaning they were on board with DeSouza. And another third of the people in the room were more on board with Hitchens and saying there is no God, all right? By the end of the night, you know how it all fell out? Exactly the way it was at the beginning of the night. As far as I could tell, there may have been a few people. Nobody switched teams. Nobody was so persuaded to change what they believed. You know why? One word, Faith faith. See, both sides were ultimately relying on faith. I mean both sides. Both sides were articulated really well. Both men were smarter than the rest of us in the room. Both asked great questions. Both provided really good answers and responses. But at the end of the day, it was clear that both men were men of great faith. Men who trusted and relied on something other than what they could point to something other than what they could scientifically prove to be true. You see, you can't scientifically prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God, even though there's an extreme amount of evidence that points in that direction. You also can't scientifically prove that there isn't a God. So applying doubt to your faith, whichever side of faith you find yourself on, is huge. Ask questions, but don't stop there. Seek answers. And my belief is that as you seek, Jesus said it, you will find But at some point, our ability to comprehend the answers runs out. Our finite minds stop. And that's when faith comes into play. Whether you like it or not, whether it's faith in God or faith in there is no God, we're all people of faith. Another obstacle for a lot of people is this. Horrible things done by those who believe in God. I hear this one all the time, to be honest with you. I hear people go, I just can't get on board with something that caused the Crusades or something that caused the Inquisition. And this is partly what Hitchens has in mind when he says that religion poisons everything. And you know what? I don't, I don't consider myself religious at all. I don't think Christianity is a religion. I don't think this is religion at all. All right? But Hitchens would put us in that category, and so I would say it differently. I think it's more accurate to say this sin poisons everything. Sin poisons everything. The truth is human beings do horrible things to one another because of sin. Because we have this sinful nature inside of us that leads us to hurt one another. And here's the problem with allowing this roadblock to put you on a path towards doubt. This is not exclusive to Christians and this is not exclusive even to religious people. This truth that sin poisons everything is universal to people. And if you wanted to compare apples to apples, I mean, if you really just wanted to get down to it and compare the damage done by those who believe in God in the name of God over the course of history compared to those who don't don't believe in God, there's no contest. You'll never get the feeling for this in the media, but here's the truth. If you take the number of deaths from the crusade and the inquisition and put them together, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 deaths. If you take the deaths that Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, just the top three murderous atheists of the 20th century, disregard all the rest and combine them, you know how many deaths you get? Just shy of 100 million. Here's my point. It's all wrong. Because sin poisons everything. And at the end of the day, I think a wise person would ask a fundamental question, which is this. Which philosophy has the tendency to cause more violence? Survival of the fittest or pray for your enemies and those who persecute you? You make the call. And there's probably one, le- one more major obstacle that tends to di- divert you and me from the path of unbelief. And it's simple, I call it this, if so, then. And what I mean by that is there's this fundamental understanding. If there is a God, a good God who came seeking me, then... That would change everything. If so, then, that would change everything. And it wouldn't make sense to hide at all because you can't hide from God. You ever played hide and seek with a little kid? Or peekaboo with like a one-year-old? I've done this a lot. I find it very, very humorous because here's what they'll do. Right? And because they can't see you, they think you can't see them. And we laugh and we go, oh, that's so cute, that's so funny. The truth is, you and I, we can't possibly look any more sophisticated to God than that when we run and hide. Right? It's just true. See, if there is a God and He's good and He came seeking me, that would change the way I live, I do business the way I love my wife, my kids, the way I do my job, everything. And you've got to hear me on this. This changes everything in my life, not because I'm afraid that there's some big bad God out there who's going to get me, but because there's a big God out there who's already proven that that's not at all what he's interested in. See, that's huge. So it's not wise, it's not even logical to hide from God, but it is easier to pretend that he's not there. He's not there, he's not there, he's not there. See, all five of those that I mentioned, probably a million more are valid. If you've been wrestling through any of those five questions or a million more, those are valid questions. They're good questions. But there's one more question. What can put us back on the path to belief as Jesus challenged Thomas with? In other words, how do you deal with doubt? What do you do with it? And what I'm about to say is true, whether you're a Christian who wrestles with doubt or not a Christian because of your doubts. Bottom line tonight, if you remember nothing else, if someone quizzes you at the, at the stoplight out there, tonight was all about this statement. You and I, we allow doubt to cause us to hide when it should cause us to seek. This philosopher named Pascal said it this way, only he who doubts can truly believe. That's just true. You see, Jesus, he came seeking us. Now it's our turn to seek him. God's invited us into this game of hide and seek, but we get our roles mixed up sometimes. Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, said it this way to a group of people in Athens, Greece, who were just all over the map in regards to their beliefs. He said it this way in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said we are his offspring right how do you deal with doubt seek seek answers but the other thing I would say is simply this, humbly admit that faith will come into the equation of your life at some point along the way. Either you will have faith there's a creator god or you will have faith that there is no god. Our finite minds come to a point where we can't comprehend the answers to the questions and Paul addressed this too. He said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13:12, we don't see we don't yet see things clearly. That's true. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing Him directly, just as He knows us. And you can call that a cop-out, as I've heard many say, or you can call it what we all know it is, true. See, does any of us really believe that it's possible for our minds to totally understand what's going on in the universe? Does any of us really believe that if there is a God out there that you and I would be able to comprehensively get our brains around who He is and what He's up to? We can't even get our brains around each other. Right? If you don't believe me, let me ask this question. Gentlemen, how many of you out there totally and comprehensively understand women? (laughs) Husband. Whoa, somebody really thinks that's a joke, right? You know, Not going to happen this side of heaven, guys, right? So... Why would we ever assume that we could possibly know all there is to know about God? See, bottom line for me is this. Seek answers. Seek to understand what you can understand. But when the answers run out, don't just assume the answers aren't there. A better assumption would be that your finite mind and mine are not in a place where they'll be able to comprehend or grasp the answer yet. And the truth is this. You and I, we don't require full and comprehensive understanding of anything in our life in order to embrace it. Right? Not one area of our life do we require that in order to embrace it. I'll prove it to you. How many of us in here actually totally and comprehensively understand electricity? How many of us use light switches? Right? How many of us totally understand how the combustible engine works? You drive a car? How many of us totally get how digestion works? Do you eat today? See, ultimately, the best example of this is found in the Bible. In Mark chapter 9, this guy, has got this son, and his son is just racked because he's, he's oppressed by this evil spirit who's, who's causing him to go into seizures, and he falls into fires, and he's just harming himself, and he's not going to live much longer if something doesn't change. And so this man brings this boy to Jesus, and he, he goes up to Jesus, and he says, if you could do something, if you can do anything, that would be great. And Jesus senses the doubt in this man's voice, and he says, if I can... For him who believes anything is possible. And the man, I love the way he responds. It's beautiful. Look at what he says. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. (laughs) Right? Could that be our prayer tonight? Could that be our prayer tonight? I think that's one of the most honest, genuine statements in the whole world. I think it describes me very well and probably a lot of you very well. I do believe (laughs) if you would help me in my unbelief. See, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're struggling with doubt, make that your prayer. If you're not a follower of Jesus and it's because of doubt, could I ask you this? Would you just doubt your doubts and seek answers? See, I I believe... I believe there's a God. I believe that he's good. I believe that he sent his son to seek and save the lost, that he came into this dark world to save us from the sin that poisons everything in our lives, to repair, to mend and restore our broken hearts and everything else around us. I believe that. God, help me in my unbelief. Let's pray. God, we come to you tonight from so many different perspectives From so many different places. Places where we have roadblocks and obstacles to believing in you. Or believing that you're even there. Believing that you care. Believing that you love us. God, some of us have some horrible experiences that are just keeping us away from believing in you. Some of us, God, we just can't understand and so we choose not to believe. Some of us, God, we've got all kinds of reasons and excuses why we would like for our life to continue as it is because if you really are there, then our lives would have to change and we're so in love with the way our life is even though it's destructing. destructive. So God, would you do what you do? Would you break into our hearts tonight? As we seek you, would you find us? God, I know that you will because you've already proved that you will when you sent your son. God, would you repair? And would you mend our lives, our marriages, our hearts, our families, our job, whatever it is? God, would you just burst forth into our lives and show up and God, we'll worship you. It's in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.